Matthew 13 and verse 45 reads, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I want us to think about this this morning. When Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of heaven, our ears should be pricking up because we ought to want to know more about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. Many of the ways that Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven are such that we know that we can't fully envision heaven in its greatest form. But he tells us aspects of it. And I think just about all of us could agree that this story about this merchant looking for a beautiful pearl, he found one pearl of great price. And he was willing to sell everything he had, had to, to buy it. Maybe in terms of the real world, this wouldn't make much sense. Why would you get rid of everything to buy one thing? And maybe there are some ways that we could come up with an explanation for it. Maybe the merchant could take that pearl and sell it to someone and get more. Maybe, uh, maybe just that pearl is so appealing to him. And I think for the disciple, this parable is pretty simple and easy to understand because if we understand this merchant is God, and if we understand that the pearl is us, it takes on a great meaning. And I want us to think about, too, when he's saying this, he is, Jesus is showing us how important we are to God. And there's a great contrast in what we might think of as a contradiction there. Because there are other passages we can look at and see where God is encouraging us to be like the Son in that He wants us to make ourselves nothing. There's the song that we sing at the cross where I first saw the light. And there's a lyric on, in there in the old version. How could he lift that sacred head for such a worm as I? Hymns for Worship says such a one as I, which I think is a better thought there. I think there's a problem when we start thinking of ourselves as useless, as worthless, because the Bible tells us many places where God values us and he honors us. And that's what I'd like for us to really address today. I want to talk about three basic things. First of all, we're beings of value. We're worth something. I want to just explore that and consider that. Secondly, we want to see how God promotes us as Christians as His treasure. And finally, in balance, we want to appreciate that if I care about my soul, I'm going to deny myself. And we want to discuss what that means and what that doesn't mean. First of all, as I said... We're beings of value. Is there a problem with being concerned with self? Is there any part of the Christian experience where we should be concerned with ourselves? Well, in Luke 9, 23, we can see very plainly, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We can look at that and say, well, that, that settles it. I'm supposed to deny myself. 
I'm supposed to put away the thoughts about myself. But we need to understand that man, at the same time, is a very special creation to God. Back in Psalm 8, we'll read that together, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. The heading here, not the heading in my translation, but the heading that dates back to the Septuagint says, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the hev- your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. It's a beautiful psalm. And it tells us something. Because in verses 3 through 5, he's saying, when I look at the glory of your creation, I wonder what's so special about me? What's so important about me? Why does God mind me? Why does he visit me? And we need to remember that visit carries with it an implication in the Bible that something is being done for our benefit. Why should God care about us? We we think about this in terms of the world. What's the world telling us? The world is telling us we are spinning on a little insignificant rock out randomly in the universe. Yet God says, you're worth something to me. I'm going to think about you. I'm going to value you. I'm going to honor you. That's an awesome thought. We, uh, God has made us to be the pinnacle of His creation. And I think the way that this comes out in terms of the New Covenant is in 1 Corinthians 7.23, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. What did God spend to be able to do this? And so, is there a problem being concerned with self? Well, I think one of the things, and just to kind of, maybe I'm spoiling a later point, but I think uh, if all I'm concerned about is myself, then there's a problem, right? But there is something else here where God is clearly showing us that you mean something, that you matter. And so let's, let's continue to think about this. I would suggest that when we think about our salvation, we're primarily concerned about ourselves. I want to go to heaven. And I think that's the motivation for just about everybody here. Look at Romans 2. Romans 2. We'll be looking looking in verse 5. And remember in context, Paul is really turning the focus on the Jews who might have looked on the Gentiles and reading through chapter 1 say, yep, God, you're absolutely right. Those Gentiles are terrible. They've abandoned you. But now he turns it around and say, you know, uh, you are inexcusable, verse 1, whoever you are who judge, 
and so on and so forth. But in verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And we, we could go on from that, but we can see the distinction here. Those who are seeking glory, honor, and immortality and well-doing, they're going to have eternal life. But those who are not seeking that, those who uh, are not looking for those things, they're going to receive another thing. There's going to be another outcome there. I would say that most people would admit, would admit that they want these things, right? Most people would admit to some degree that they want glory, honor, and immortality. Maybe some people wouldn't want immortality. But in a sense, if you think about it in this way, what does immortality mean typically? It means we just want to be remembered. You think about all the emperors throughout time, the kings that have tried to make statues of their likenesses, and they're all gone or decayed to a point where... Maybe they're almost unrecognizable. And uh, honor, you know, we need to pick this apart a little bit because what is our glory? What is our point of living, right? Our goal should be the glory and praise of God. And these are the highest degrees of happiness and approval. Most people in the world want these things, but they don't really understand what the Bible says about them. I think honor in the Bible, we see this is the honor and reward that friends of God are going to be given in heaven. Immortality, that never-ending life of happiness in heaven, a remembrance by God that God knows you and that God identifies with you. We're supposed to be seeking and striving for these things. And I want to challenge us in thinking about this this morning. What are we doing in these things except looking out for ourselves? Now, I want to qualify that, of course. But think about that. Let's just think about the, in this point right here. These are things that if I do this in a way that the world tries to do it, I'm going to be seeking worldly pursuits. I'm going to be looking at carnal things. But the spiritual person considers spiritual things, and that's where we're looking for this honor, glory, and immortality. In order to love others, I think in this sense, when we're talking about this, we must love ourselves. Matthew 22, turn there with me, please. And really what we're talking about here is if I want what is best for me, spiritually, in terms of how God defines it, then I can actually want the best for others. In uh, Matthew 22 and verse 39, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I've said this, I've mentioned this here before. The implication of this command is that for me to be able to love my neighbor, I have to love myself. But we have to qualify that and understand what we mean there. Because loving ourselves does not mean uh, being self-obsessed or self-deluded or uh, self-centered. But I would suggest another passage, Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. We're looking in verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. 
that, that inward look is important. I have to be willing to look at myself with an unbiased eye, of course, recognize where am I in relation to where God wants me to be. And also I have to recognize that primarily this is the interest, of course, in spiritual things, not carnal. I'm not putting myself ahead of others in terms of material goods or service or things like that. But I need to recognize my soul's worth to God. I need to appreciate the dangers that are present toward my soul. And uh, if I understand that in the ways that I can grow, I'm going to want the same for others around me. Again, the motivation to get to heaven, doesn't that bleed through to the way that we deal with each other? I want to get to heaven, and I want everyone else to come with me, right? I want everybody in this room to come to heaven too. And so uh, in, in developing this, let's, let's think about this, and let's be challenged by this thought that, that there, there is an aspect where we have to focus on ourselves, and make sure that I'm right with God in this way. So we're, we're valuable. We're worth something to God. And God, in turn, promotes us as Christians as His treasure. We belong to Him. In uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, do, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Again, this can seem kind of a disconnect, can it? We need to be focused on ourselves, but also we're, we belong to God. But again, it's all defined by God. We don't own our bodies. We have no say in what we do with them. And so our aim and goal is to glorify God because we're His. We belong to Him. We're totally and completely His. And that needs to be our mindset. There's no part of my life that I sequester away for myself. And, and the reason is, plainly, because this is what's best for us. And one of the things that I want us to think of, and we're going to stay in Ephesians for a little bit, uh, he's raised us up, he set us in heavenly places. There's a number of passages in Ephesians that I want us to look through here. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, look there with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. So from that, we can appreciate that He has blessed us in the heavenly places. There are all these things that God has done for us for our benefit, for our good. And so he's appreciating that at the start of the letter. Later on in, chapter, in verse 19 of the same chapter, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that in which to come. Let's remember and keep in mind as we're going through these passages, uh, God's blessed us in the heavenly places. He has set Christ in the heavenly places. And what has He set Him above? All power, all principality, everything, everywhere. That's what He's done for Christ. Now look in chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Can I suggest that, that we're in the same spot here? He's raised us up into the same places in Christ. And so where Christ is, there's that same vantage point where we're looking over all of creation, all power, all dominion. Then in chapter 3 and verse 8, think about this. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There's that heavenly places, that spiritual realm, some, some translations might say. We're talking about spiritual places, heavenly places. And I would suggest that these principalities and powers in the heavenly places are impacted by our actions. There's something about what God has intended where the decisions that we make here impact in these great heavenly places where these principalities and powers are. I don't know all the details of that, but it's fascinating, isn't it? That what we do and say here, the decisions we make here have spiritual consequences. We'll revisit that in just a little bit. Look at chapter 6 and verse 12. Before Paul goes into the whole armor of God, in, in chapter 6 and verse 12, we're just linking these concepts together. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So that, I think, really ties it up and helps us understand sort of the conflict we have ahead of us here and the conflict that God is battling for us. And together with Him, we are wrestling against these spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What does that say about about what's going on in, in chapter... Uh, Back in chapter 3, we see that these principalities and powers, the whole point of us being in the kingdom is to make it known to those principalities and powers that uh, greatness, that great wisdom of God, that great mystery that's unfolded and revealed now. So this is the whole point of our existence, really. We're supposed to be existing in these heavenly places. There's so much in there about that. And so because of that, I think when we consider what God has done for us and how he treasures us, that's how much he treasures us. He puts us in a place where we are on display for all creation to see his manifold wisdom. Again, what's so special about us that he would do that? Christians are his possession, and he'll bless us forever. 1 Peter 3, turn there please. 1 Peter 3, we'll be looking at 3 through 5. Well, let me see here. Yeah, 1 Peter 1. Got the, got the typo there. Yeah, no, it's up there, isn't it? 
Not a typo. I just misread it. Sorry. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Do we appreciate how special this is? The things that God has done for us. No one should ever really feel worthless in this world, at least not someone who's a Christian. And even no one who's not a Christian, because God still has that invitation open to them to become a Christian. God has given us everything He could for our well-being. So what's the eternal goal of this? It's to live for Him. We're, we're His treasure. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, and verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul knew that God was looking out for him. And Paul knew that in order to be faithful, Paul had to care about his own spiritual state. Revelation 22, in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. How many Christians claim Christ, but do not care about how clean their robes are? Don't care about their spiritual state. We'll try to help others when they themselves are in a state where they are impacted. A number of things that we want to continue to think about there. But I think the key to all this is to first of all understand that God treasures us, God values us. We're important, but not in the way the world acts, right? And the balance to this, of course, is that if I care about my soul, I'm going to deny myself. Again, this is what's best for us. This is what's best for us. Self-denial is the anathema of the world. It's completely against everything that the world stands for. And yet, of course, going back to Luke 9, we're supposed to deny ourselves. And what does that really, truly look like? Philippians 2, please. Philippians 2, you're looking at 2 through 5. Paul writes, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I want us to think about this and consider. To only be concerned with self is to lack the full spectrum of God's love. And the interesting thing about this passage is that Christ made nothing of himself up on the cross, right? He allowed that wickedness to rail against him. But let me suggest, too, that if Jesus had acted in such a way that he had fulfilled every selfish desire he might have had, he wouldn't have been the sinless sacrifice. And so there wouldn't have been any point to him being on the cross. And we need to remember that when it says that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it means he was tempted in the wilderness. It's not like those temptations just jumped off of him like, like you know, bullets off of Superman or something like that. When Satan says, command these rocks to be made into bread, 
this is 40 days that he's been without food and without water. So can we appreciate that Jesus was to some degree concerned about his spiritual well-being? He was concerned about his own state of things. That's why he departed and went away from the crowd from time to time. He departed to be with his father because he knew that's what was best for him and he knew that's what was best for the whole situation. Back in Mark 12, we don't have the time to go into this, but if you remember the woman who tossed in the two mites into the treasury. And I've been told that the treasury was something that uh, would have made a whole lot of noise for someone who had a lot of coins to put in. And maybe not too many people noticed that woman's two mites going into the treasury, but Jesus noticed it. And Jesus took note of it, and he, he uh, used that as a teaching tool to teach others, to show others that just because people don't notice these things doesn't mean that they're pointless or there's nothing going on. We need to be willing to deny ourselves so that we have the fullest extent of God's love in our lives. Our deeds on earth, as I said, have spiritual consequences. I want to just briefly move through some passages here for us to think about. If I live like the world, I need to realize the, re- the, the consequences to my soul. That there are very real spiritual consequences to the decisions that I make. We've already talked about that in Ephesians 3. But let me suggest that these passages really share that. In James 2... 15 through 16, 1 John 3, 17. These passages really talk about if we fail to help each other out, then there's, there's a problem there, right? When we have the means and the ability to help each other out, and I don't do that, I choose not to do that. It damages my soul. It hurts my soul. It puts me in a damaged state. In James 5, verse 16, if we fail to pray for each other, we become damaged. Galatians 6, 1, I want us to take a brief look at that as well because that, that's so important in terms of the conversation uh, that we're having uh, with this as well. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Can we see how there is a matter of self-interest there? where we're looking out for ourselves to some degree. And maybe when someone is off the rails and going against the Lord, maybe we need to be willing to recognize, you know, maybe someone who has just recently come out of sin, maybe they're not the best person to sin to help encourage that person. I think they could come along, but I think there's someone, you know, you need someone who's grounded to go and talk to that person. I'll tell you, it's, temptation becomes that much stronger when it's two Christians doing the sin. And I mean, John, John, I'm sure John will tell you that when two drug, drug addicts, reformed, get together afterwards, I mean, there can be a danger of going back to those old habits. And so there must be an aspect where we appreciate, you know, there's another thing too that we need to think about too. Uh, if I'm cursing and swearing, if I'm watching filthy movies, if I'm listening to filthy music, in any other way participating, excusing, or ignoring sin. There's a number of passages we could look at here. I didn't list any here. But it's, we're going to damage our soul by such things. And we need to be careful there, too. 
1 John 3 and verse 16, if we fail to sacrifice for each other, we become damaged. This is all just basically for us to understand that there are consequences to our sin for ourselves. And we need to appreciate that. Now, my sin affects others as well. And I need to remember that. I need to remember there are consequences toward others with my sin. But I also need to know that this is damaging me. And the reality is that you can think that you're doing what you want, that you're uh, embracing your desires and you're fulfilling everything you ever wanted to do. And sometimes Christians that fall away, they feel like they can do that. But the reality is they're causing themselves so much hurt. And uh, just back in, in Romans 2, another part of that passage that talks about that is you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. That's what sinners are doing. All you're doing when you, do, when you sin is you're just storing up regret for later on. And you can have those sins forgiven, but let me tell you, the guilt still stands. And we, most of us know about that, don't we? The guilt can still be there. And we still wrestle with that. And so let me suggest as we close our thoughts that we have to be last in our mindset to be first in God's glory. Back in Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and verse 24. Similar statement as in Luke 9. Matthew 16 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Think about that. To save my life, I have to lose my life. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense to us immediately, maybe, but in order to save my spiritual life, I have to lose my worldly life. That's what has to happen. That is the decision before every person in this world all the time. Am I going to hold on to this worldly life, or am I going to cast it off and embrace the life that God wants for me? To ensure my salvation, I have to give my life entirely to God, and so for my ultimate self-preservation, I have to entrust my life to the Creator. Look in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, please. And verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith, excuse me, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, I would stress that this is the best kind of self-worth. Because if I empty myself and let God fill me up, that gives me purpose, that gives me focus, that gives me a path, that I know I'm worth something to Him, and even if the world tells me that I'm worthless, I don't have to listen to it. Because my God has shown me every way He can that He loves me, that He treasures me, He has a place of value for me, and He gave everything He could to secure that. How dare we cast that aside? Romans 12. Romans 12 and verse 1. 
I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, back to Ephesians 3. The principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We are here to show all of creation the manifold wisdom of God. That is the responsibility upon our shoulders. And if I think of myself as a worm, if I think of myself as someone who is useless and pointless and and worth nothing, well, we're speaking against everything that God's told us. The best self-worth is found in living through Christ and destroying our sinful selves. I want us to turn briefly to to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24. This is not in the PowerPoint, but again, just going back to the concept of why did God do all this? Why did God give so much and invest so much time in this great plan? I think it's the same motivation he tells the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as it is this day. You could say, yeah, that's part of the Old Covenant, but I think that truism is still clear in the New Testament. That God did all this, He sacrificed all this so that we can be His eternally. And so the question comes to this, where are you in all of this? What does your life look like? Is it a changed life? We encourage you to think about that. If you need to respond to the gospel call, please come while we stand and sing.